You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast, www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing you can't ask on the Savage Lovecast. There's a column at The Guardian, one of many columns at The Guardian, actually, that I really enjoy. It's about people's sex lives, stories that people submit to The Guardian about sex they're having, with whom they're having it, not just hookups, also a lot of stuff about relationships, a little like modern love in The New York Times, but with the focus primarily on the fucking and the impact of the fucking and the repercussions of the fucking. And there's one today that caught my eye, and I wanted to draw your attention to it and share it with you because, well, it illustrates and kind of confirms two points I frequently make here on the Lovecast. This one is called My Life in Sex, I Have Sensual Encounters with My Masseur. It's written by a married woman, I believe in the UK, who says that 13 years ago, we, my husband and I, became parents and it sucked the wind out of my husband's sails. He became depressed and lost all interest in sex. A decade went by in which she and her husband had no sex and she heard through a friend of a friend of a friend about a masseur, about a massage therapist who practices sensual but non-sexual massage. And she went to see this therapist, this massage therapist. And during their sessions, she would have orgasms without any direct intimate contact. And then she writes, I felt I could trust him and asked whether we could have sex. I lost my virginity to my husband and had never been with anyone else. But the thought of going through life having only been with one man who now didn't want sex was infuriating. Four years after making my first appointment, we meet once or twice a year and have sex in an hours-long, languid, sensual encounter. She goes on to say that her husband is no longer depressed, that they have a good and decent relationship, but still very little to absolutely no sex. I do love him, the anonymous author writes, and wouldn't break up our family for the world. And what makes it possible for her to stay married and stay sane, as I like to say, is this massage therapist. I've frequently said that there are relationships, there are marriages that are saved by cheating. Marriages that should continue. She loves her husband. He loves her. They have kids together. They're a good couple. She loves her husband. He loves her. They have a family. She doesn't want to break her family up, but she would have to if she didn't have this release. Not only is this an example of one of those cases where cheating saves a marriage, this is also a case where, although this person calls themselves a masseuse and practices sensual massage. This is a case, I think, where a sex worker has saved a marriage. If you're doing sensual massage, that is, of course, sex work. And if you're doing sex work, the legit masseuse community out there doesn't want you to identify yourself as a masseuse or me to refer to you as a masseuse. So I'm going to refer to this person now as a sex worker. But this is an example of a sex worker who stepped in and saved a marriage by facilitating what? Release by facilitating someone staying married and staying sane, by providing them with what their spouse is not interested in providing them with. Sex, intimacy, meeting this particular kind of need. And it's made it possible for this woman to keep her family together. And yeah, it's not ideal. And some people out there will say that she should do the right thing if she wants to have sex at all or with other people and divorce her husband. But her husband doesn't want to be divorced. And she doesn't want to divorce him. That's also in the piece. She wants, again, to keep her family together. And what's keeping her family together? Cheating and a sex worker. Cheating, of course, isn't going to save every marriage. Sex workers, of course, aren't always angels of mercy. Cheating can explode a marriage. 
Seeing a sex worker can explode a marriage. Infidelity, one of the leading causes of divorce. Doesn't save marriages in every case. It's not chemotherapy. It's not a cure. It's not a cancer cure. But the way we talk about cheating, the way we talk about sex workers, particularly sex workers who see people who are in committed relationships, always makes them sound like the problem and the threat. It's a little more nuanced than that. It's a little bit more ambiguous than that, a little more complicated than that. But we don't usually hear about these kinds of examples. We don't usually hear about the marriages, the relationships saved by cheating, saved by sex workers because there's no public scandal. There's no divorce. There's no reason for the divorce. There's no gossip. There's no chatter. It happens below everyone's radar. Every once in a while, though, it surfaces. Every once in a while, you see an example like this. Again, the column at The Guardian is I Have Sensual Encounters with My Masseur. It's their My Life in Sex column. And if you're not reading it, you should be. All right, coming up on today's show, we've got tons of your cues, lots of my A's, and on the micro edition of the Savage Lovecast, we have a call from a listener who's being terrorized by one of her exes who's putting her private photographs online, and we've got Carrie Goldberg, victims' rights advocate, pioneering victims' rights advocate. She prosecutes online harassers and revenge pornographers, and she's here to help our listener on today's show. Hey, Dan. I'm calling because... I am considering cutting a kind of chunk of people out of my life, and I just wanted to hear your thoughts on the situation. So I had a good friend for quite a few years, and um, for various reasons I won't get into, the friendship you know, turned kind of toxic over a course of like the last few years. And so uh, we took a break from seeing each other, like a six-month break, we didn't really mutually agree to do it. It just happened and I started to feel better. But then um, she started reaching out to me again and I like to give people <laughs> other chances. So I would say I've seen her like three times in the last two months. And it's been fun until, <laughs> until this last time. She said to me that she's worried about me and my friends are really worried about me and that you know, on a scale of one to 10 of like people's lives being on the edge or something that I'm at a 10. And so I said, okay, well, what is it? You know, tell me why you're worried about me and what friends are worried about me. And she wouldn't really elaborate Just said, I seem really unhappy. <laughs> and I think that's bullshit. Um, I, I've had some tough times. I did have a really tough year. Uh, and I probably exhausted my friend's capacity to listen to me complain and bitch. But overall, my my life is fine. Um, I'm I'm not that unhappy. I'm just kind of struggling a little bit with a few things. Like I, I don't like my job, and my husband and I have had some major disagreements. But overall, we're happy together. The more I think about it, the more it pisses me off because it just seems like it's more about controlling or being judgmental. So anyway, I've decided not to see this girl again because it's just like, it's not worth it. Um, but then I'm thinking about the only friends we have in common. It's like five or six people. And even though she wouldn't specify, I'm thinking this means that when I'm not around, they like sit around and discuss me. So I'm thinking of not seeing any of those motherfuckers either. <laughs> oh, and also I kind of checked in with a couple of other friends that I have like from another other parts of my life who I have been seeing a lot more of lately. And they're like, no, I'm not worried about you at all. Like, sometimes you're a little, you know, neurotic, which I am. 
but uh, you know, you're, you're fine. I like, I'm not worried about you. So I'm thinking of just cutting out this group of like six or seven. Um, but do you think I'm being crazy? Like I, I want to be able to be introspective and see like when the choices I make maybe aren't good or healthy, but honestly, like who needs that shit, right? It's possible that everyone in this sort of chunk of your social circle, these friends, these six, are terribly, terribly shitty people. Like attracts like, birds of a feather, flock together, all the cliches occasionally apply, and maybe they're just awful, and they all need to go. And your other friends tell you that, yeah, you've been bitching a little bit about work and marriage issues, and you seem not entirely happy all the time, but... It's not as bad as all that and maybe they're right and maybe these shitty people are underminers and they just want to drag you down and pick you apart for God knows what reason. It's a good idea when you recognize that there's a clique of shitty people in your life to walk away from those shitty people and to to withdraw from those shitty people and focus your time and your energies and the emotional investments you're able to make in your friendships on people who aren't so shitty if indeed these are shitty people. I think, however, that a moment's introspection is called for if you've been, you say, in a bad place at work and marriage on the rocks a little bit, but you guys are coming through and pulling out of that. If every time you saw your friends, you just launched into your complaints and you weren't there for them, you didn't listen to them and you had not a nice thing to say about anyone or anything and you were just venting then it might be you. You may have contributed to the souring of this group. And yeah, maybe they were all talking with each other about you. Maybe you came up and they were like, God, every time we see her, it's just we have to sit in silence and listen to this torrent of complaints. And I'm not saying that's what you did. I'm not saying that that's what happened. But I think you need to ask yourself if that's what you did, if that is indeed what happened, if you played a part in souring this small group on you or not even souring them. It sounds like your friend came to you to express concern. Maybe she was nominated by the group to go to you and check in and be like, come on, how are you doing? Like, what's up? I don't want to commodify friendships, but there's a give and take. There's a pay in and withdraw aspect to a friendship where people will be there for you uh, in the tough times and listen to you vent and get it off your chest in exchange, not just for you doing the same for them when they're facing tough times and they need to vent, but in exchange also for pleasure and joy and companionship and good times. And if you were drawing on the friendship bank a lot over the last year or two, and it was all, I need your support, I need to vent, I need to support, I need to vent, and it was no, I'm here to give you support, I'm here for you to vent to too, and no, let's have fun, let's play a game, let's go to a movie, let's have dinner, let's talk about other shit and have a laugh. If there was none of those, really not to commodify it, but compensatory sort of exchanges then yeah, friends can sour on you. You can lose friends that way. You can overtax them. You can make too many withdrawals. You can deplete your account at the friendship bank. You need to be thoughtful about that. Not saying that these people aren't six deeply shitty people that you should cut out of your life and need to cut out of your life and I support you in cutting them out of your life. But a moment's introspection before you cut six people out of your life is called for. Hi, Dan and the tech-savvy at-risk youth. I've had a bad couple of years and I've lost several jobs, which were a combination of my fault and just wasn't a great fit. And I lost a girlfriend, uh, then I was laid off and which combined together just left me in the hospital. 
I found another job and another girlfriend and that didn't work out. And then I ended up losing my best friend over it. And things just keep happening to me. My counselor, who has really great and, you know, really sex positive, a really cool guy, he, his current theory is that it's a gypsy curse and that I should invest in lotto tickets, maybe, uh, for karma's sake. But nevertheless, it just keeps happening. Like, horrible, traumatic things keep happening to me. And I'm still recovering from the last thing when a new thing happens. And I'm recovering from these two things when another thing happens. And it's just never-ending. Nevertheless, I am single. And... I don't want a girlfriend right now. I want to be in a place where I can have a girlfriend, but I recognize fully that I am not there right now. Nevertheless, I would like companionship. Uh, I've always been really sex positive, had a very high libido, but how do I present that as, hey, do you want to come over and watch Rick and Morty and eat pizza and fuck, because that sounds like a really great time to me, without sounding like a fuckboy? Uh, I know that guys, there are a lot of guys out there who, you know, they want just that. But for me, it's more like I can't handle more than that. I've always been very GGG, very sex positive. Sex and sexuality are super important to me. But just, yeah, I don't know what to do about my friend. I don't know what to do about my life. I don't know what to do about sex and relationship. This whole, I don't know, Dan. (laughs) So you say things keep happening to me Mm -hmm. and you have a therapist and you've unpacked the things that keep happening to you with your therapist. The, you know, some people may be saying to themselves something that I frequently said on the program that, you know, there are times you need to look at everything going on in your life and ask yourself, am I the common denominator? Mm -hmm. But if you've unpacked all this shit with your therapist, people do have strings of bad luck. People do get into one or two bad relationships in a row. People do you know, have a couple of shitty jobs. And sometimes it all comes at once. You think of Tig Notaro's very famous uh, comedy set when, you know, her mother died and then she got diagnosed with cancer and then she got diagnosed with something else and she did that cancer set. Um, and it just seemed mm-hmm. like the universe had it in for Tig Notaro. So that does happen. We're just... Yeah, I I don't, and I don't want to be that kind of person that, oh, woe is me, look at all these things happening, but fuck, dude, <laughs> like objectively keep looking at it. I'm in I'm in awe of my shit life right now. I'm kind of in shock. But but you've you've scrutinized it and you've talked with the therapist who's I hope willing to challenge you isn't just somebody you're paying to sit there and nod. And no, he's uh he's good. Okay, and and, and so I'm gonna I'm gonna accept your premise here that that it's not you. You're not the common denominator. Just a string of horrible luck, and you are laid low and devastated. It's, I mean, it's not just me. I'm not, I'm not here to say that I'm totally blameless. I, um, you know, these other jobs I wasn't either prepared for. I didn't, I tried my best and I made mistakes and, mm-hmm. you know, these people have businesses to run. Um, but it, yeah, it just really sucks. Okay. Well, you found the wrong job. You, you tried your best, yeah. but you weren't the right fit. That doesn't mean that that doesn't make you the common denominator then in, in, in your tale of woe. Like you've had a string of shit luck. So that was my first question for you or the one challenge for you. The other thing I wanted to ask you, get you on the phone to ask you is like, what's so scary about the word girlfriend? It's the fact that it would be really unfair for me right now. And based off of all of like, I was, I was in the hospital 
mm-hmm. for two side accounts back to May. And I'm not in a place right now where I can be in a healthy relationship. And I don't want to ask a stranger. Like you always say, I've been listening to your program for several years. And the way you always put it is, you know, people have to be in good working order. And the fact of the matter is I'm not right now. Mm -hmm. Like, fuck dude. (laughs) Like I am not in a place right now where, I can give that 50-50 split. It sounds like you're in pretty decent working order because you sound so self-aware and so articulate about the spot you found yourself in in your life. You know, I I think someone who's had your string of bad luck, who wasn't getting help, didn't get himself to a hospital, didn't get into counseling, that person is in much less decent working order than you are. You're getting your shit together. And mm-hmm. there, and there's no like oh, yeah working on it right but there's no like I've got my shit together getting your shit together is a never ending project mm-hmm. so there's no like finish line here's your got your shit together diploma you are now in good working order and good working order mm-hmm. doesn't mean perfect you know a, a car can be in good working order and still have a rattle and a busted you know windshield wiper and an out tail light and still be in pretty good working order so don't hold yourself to a standard of perfection that prevents you from making human connections because you're bagging on yourself right now i've talked to a lot of people who are not in good working order they aren't as sort of clear-eyed and clear-minded as you are so give yourself a little bit of credit i asked you what's so scary about the word girlfriend because what you say you want is someone to hang out with you want companionship you want someone to come over eat pizza watch rick and morty which i've never seen um and fuck oh you should it's a good show (laughs) and fuck (laughs) and that's what you want and you know there's friends with benefits there are women out there who don't want uh, a boyfriend or the obligations or entanglements or whatever people fear comes bundled with those titles either. And you can put out there that, you know, I've had, you know, I'm getting my shit together. I- I'm in a spot where I don't think I can be a hundred percent emotionally available to someone as a boyfriend. But if you're in the same place and need someone to hang out with and companionship and just want to eat some pizza and maybe fuck, like I might be your guy right now. You can put that out there in the universe and see what you get. And there are women out there who want just that. Yeah, I, I, like I said, I didn't, I'm somewhat older, I'm 30, um, and I have kind oh of, God. you know, like a... Do, do, do not wait, do not tell me that you're 30 and so you are old. Because I'll I'm have to not, jump through the phone I, and I'm slap an, I'm you. I'm an adult. Yeah, you're an adult. I know, you're 50, congratulations. <laughs> but like, but I, I, um, I'm an adult, you know, I'm not in my young, early 20s anymore. And I have kind of seen a 50-50 split, if you will, about like women who are either ready to get married and have kids with extent and the ones that are like, Hey, cool. I want to fuck too. Cause I'm busy with my job and 50 other things. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, I have been met with a lot of resentment of just like, Oh, so you want all the benefits, but none of the attachment. And I'm like, yeah, but not that you put it that way. It makes you sound like an asshole. So I don't, I don't know how to say that without sounding like a fuckboy. Basically, it's my real concern. That's why I asked you what's so scary about the word girlfriend. It's not. It's the. It's not that it's scary. It's that I am because, like, I I want a girlfriend to be honest. But it's more that I want to be in a place where I can have a girlfriend, and I'm focusing on my life. Right. You're afraid that you won't be a good boyfriend. That you're not in a place where you can be a good boyfriend because you have it in your head that boyfriends do this, 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 and this. But boyfriend, girlfriend, like a marriage is whatever the two people in it say that it is. Mm -hmm. 
And that can, you know, you can be boyfriends, girlfriends, or married, and that can come with all sorts of obligations and entanglements and the logistics of everyday life. You can also be, you know, it can be, you can be monogamous, you can have kids, you, like we talk about marriage, like you get to define it for yourself. The same applies with boyfriend, girlfriend. Like we're boyfriend and girlfriend, those are the terms that uh, you want to use and that's what you're comfortable with. We can use those, but, you know, right now, because I'm working on this, I'm working on that, uh, I can't. You know, we have to define boyfriend, girlfriend a little more casually, a little more loosely. And if yeah. your expectations once you get the girlfriend gong is that, you know, we're together every night. And if there's any emergency or any need that you have at all, I'm your on-call guy. Well, right now I'm not able to be that for you. Someone who wants that kind of boyfriend won't want to be your girlfriend. But yeah. someone who doesn't want that kind of boyfriend but is more comfortable you know, hanging out with and fucking and watching Rick and Morty and eating pizza with someone who isn't just this guy, but is her boyfriend, however loosely defined. I just don't think you should run from the terms because you get to define those terms in a relationship. The two people or three people or whatever number of people in your relationship, you get to define what those terms mean to you and for you. And, you know, if she needs to hear girlfriend to be the kind of companion that you need right now, Call her your fucking girlfriend. If you saying the magic two syllables girlfriend results in her making demands on you that you can't meet and asking you for things that you can't give her right now, then break up. Yeah, I guess it's just, you know, it's with everything else going on right now. I'm like looking for a job for like the fifth time in two years mm-hmm. and dealing with these really traumatic things, like my best friend breaking up with me, going to quote. Uh, so it's like, I'm like still kind of really dealing with all of these. Yeah. Um, you know, what you want right now is companionship and what the person who might be willing to be your companion wants in exchange for her time and watching TV with you and eating pizza with you is to hear that word. And then you get to define what that word means. Maybe you should come through with that word. If that's what's preventing you from finding the companionship you want at this moment. Also, if you're reeling right now, reeling is not a good time to create anything or to bring anyone into your life. Like have, have your wallow real, find your footing, which does not mean perfect working order, which does not mean complete stability. You know, you can find your footing and still be on a rocking boat and then go find. But right now, jack off. It has been, um, we all have that. Uh, so can I put on my Tinder profile, just Dan Savage says I should do this? Or? <laughs> you can. You can. Awesome. And if it might help someone understand where you're at right now, you could have them listen to this. Yeah, I you, could. You know, and you can tell them, like, I was being completely unguarded and open. And if you're curious where I'm at right now, listen to that particular episode of the Savage Lovecast and you can hear me talking. All right. I'll do that. Well, thank you so much for you and what you do. I've been listening to your podcast for years, and it's informed a lot of my love life and my kink life. Oh, good. Really, thank you, and thank you for calling and, too. And good luck. And I'm sorry you've had, I'm sorry you've had an Annis Horribilis, as the Queen of England might say. And I hope things turn around for you soon. And who knows? Thank do, you very much. Don't Dan. listen to your therapist. Go buy that lottery ticket. Who knows? That might be the turning point. Uh, yeah, he actually encouraged me to. Oh, good. <laughs> okay, talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Hi, Dan. This is a bi mother of two, married for eight years, living in the Pacific Northwest. And I just had a question. My husband has been exploring his 
gender queerness, which is cool. Like he just wants to wear women's clothing. It's sexy. It's comfortable. And in all honesty, if he, you know, without all this communication, if he decided that a penis wasn't in his idea of gender for himself, I would be totally cool with it. Now, the problem is that he keeps wearing my clothes. And most of the time that's fine. But like I said, I'm a mother of two. They're both two and under. And I don't have new stuff for me hardly ever. I'm a bigger girl, size 40 in men. And he's a size 29, 30 waist in men. And so he can fit into my stuff. I can't fit into his. It takes me a long time to find clothes on clearance, on sale, so that we're saving money. And he's a size small in women. So he's just finding shit all of the time. And it's making me feel like crappy. I didn't grow up with siblings who took my stuff and it's feeling more and more like my husband is a little sister trying to wear my dress to school or my brand new boots that I've looked for years or I don't know. And it just sucks. I'm so happy he's exploring the side of himself. And I I love seeing him in his yoga pants and his skirts and wants to buy a new bra, but fuck man, I'm nursing and I haven't had a new bra in over two years. You don't get a new bra. Like it doesn't, uh, it just sucks. So Dan, how do I not be jealous? How do I support him in finding his style and what makes him comfortable and wearing stuff out of the house that looks good on him and makes him feel sexy without it being my stuff that makes me comfortable and makes me feel sexy. I think it's perfectly reasonable to say to your spouse, and it doesn't mean you aren't supportive of his gender journey, to tell him that you don't want him wearing your clothes. You're not comfortable with him wearing your clothes, that your clothes are about your own self-expression. And seeing him grab them and wear them is interfering with your own self-expression or your attachment, your emotional attachment to your own garments and the wardrobe that you have uh, assembled with great difficulty uh, because of your size and the inability of the fashion industry or the clothing industry to provide clothes for you that you're comfortable in that you can afford. However, then he's going to have to purchase clothes. And it sounds like you also have a little bit of an issue with that, that you're scrimping and saving, money is tight, you find things on sale and he's running out and buying a new bra. Well, if he didn't buy a new bra, then he might be wearing yours and you don't want him wearing yours. Now, there are used bras out there in the world. There is goodwill out there in the world. And if he's comfortable wearing clothes that aren't brand new, which is what he does when he wears your clothes, theoretically, he would be comfortable wearing clothes that he bought in a used clothing store or a vintage clothing store at a hopefully steep discount, nowhere near new clothes retail. And you could encourage him to do that. But I think you're allowed to have boundaries. You can be supportive and have boundaries. You can be supportive of his journey. You can be supportive of his exploration of his gender queerness or whatever it is and say to him, but my support ends where my dresser drawers begin. These are my clothes and you need to get your own clothing, not just borrow mine. And if finances are tight, you have a right, your responsibility to say to him and it's not not supportive of his gender thing to say – and you got to get your ass to goodwill. And we can't afford to be spending a lot of money right now on new clothes, new bras, new dresses, new skirts, new yoga pants. Let's go out there. And I'll go out there with you and help you shop. Let's go out there together and find stuff 
at the secondhand stores, at the flea markets, and the consignment shops that are yours and about you and about your expression and about your exploration and cheap. Hi, Dan. I'm a 48-year-old cisgender straight married man about to celebrate his 20th wedding anniversary tomorrow. I do mean celebrate. My wife and I agree that we're happier together now than we've ever been, partly thanks to you. Because five years ago, this outcome didn't seem likely. We were both committed Christians when we married, and we followed the rules. We didn't sleep together until the wedding night. I actually lived at her parents' for two months when we bought a house before the wedding to avoid temptation. After we got married, surprise, we discovered we had mismatched libidos and no foundation for even talking about sex. We tried counseling to no avail. At a men's prayer group I attended, this seemed to be the norm. Most of the men watched porn, felt guilty about it, and prayed that God would help them to honor their wives and not want sex so much. Six years ago, right after New York State legalized same-sex marriage, a pastor at our church delivered a vile sermon against homosexuality. My wife stood up in the middle, took our daughter by the hand, left the church, and hasn't been back since. It took me longer because I worked for the church, also because I wasn't ready yet. Three years ago, we discovered your podcast and started talking about the calls and the issues they raised. This past summer, my wife surprised me by saying that she was ready to open up our marriage to ethical non-monogamy. She'd been thinking about it for a long time and realized that we each do other activities with members of the opposite sex. In her words, you go to movies with other women, and I don't worry that I'll lose you. You travel to run out-of-town marathons with other women, and I don't worry I'll lose you. So why does it have to be any different if you sleep with another woman? Because here's the thing. Except for sex, we line up. We check most of the boxes for each other. We're great roommates. We have a daughter together. We're politically compatible. We have financial interests in common. We really like each other. We're best friends. We don't want a divorce, but we do want each other to be happy and fulfilled, which is where this arrangement came from. Just talking about the elephant in the room finally lifted a huge weight from both of us. Years of frustration and resentment faded away just by talking about the possibility of opening the marriage. I didn't even know if anything would come of it, but then I attended my 30-year class reunion, had a spark with an old friend who was in the final stages of divorce. I asked my wife for her okay, which is part of our ground rules, and she said yes. She even connected with my friend on Facebook. This has been life-changing in so many ways I don't need to get into. Long story short, Dan, your program opened our eyes and planted seeds that have come to fruition helped make this anniversary a real celebration. Because we're completely open about this, we've told friends. The main concern seems to be what if someone catches feelings and wants to leave. My wife replies that could happen whether or not we have an open marriage. As we told our daughter when we explained our decision to her, we're doing this because we don't want to divorce. So thank you, Dan, Nancy, and the Tech Savvy at Risk Youth. Keep up the good work. Thank you so much for your call, and thanks also to your wife for walking out when the pastor delivered the anti-gay sermon. We need more people to take those kinds of stands in their houses of worship. And congratulations, and keep communicating, keep talking to each other. But I wanted to play the call. We usually don't play a lot of complimentary calls. Uh, I wanted to play the call because it's a good example of something I've talked about before, which is when non-monogamy saves a relationship, when it saves a marriage, we rarely hear about it because most people – who are who open their marriages, who open their relationships in order to save them because everything is working except the sex. And there's a lot of contentiousness about fine, trying to make that sex work. Uh, and it generates a lot of conflict in the relationship. And some people open the relationship and then that conflict over sex and fulfillment and the resentments evaporate because they're no longer looking to each other to meet that need. And they're getting that need met elsewhere and they've eliminated the central conflict in the relationship and suddenly – 
the relationship, the marriage is much better, much more stable. And like you said to your daughter, you're doing this because you don't want to get divorced. And when openness saves a marriage, saves a relationship, particularly a straight one, we almost never hear about it because most people in open relationships who are straight are not out. We hear about it if it comes to shit. We hear about it if openness or somebody meeting somebody else results in the divorce that you two have opened your marriage to avoid. Then we all hear about it. And then everybody goes, ah, see, anytime anybody opens marriage, anytime anybody opens a relationship, that's the death knell. That's the beginning of the end. And people say that in a room sometimes with people who have been in successful, long-term, open relationships for decades who have their mouths sewn shut, who don't speak up at that moment because they don't want to be out because they aren't ready to bear up under the stigma or the judgment or the shame that so many people who are honest about being in open relationships, myself included, are often subjected to. But you don't want it to come to shit. You don't want to be that story in two years or five years. So my advice to you and your wife, continue to prioritize each other's emotional security. Continue to be intimate with one another. Continue to invest in your marriage, in your relationship, in your friendship, in your partnership, including the intimacy. I'm not saying sex. I'm not using intimacy and sex interchangeably here. But physical contact, physical affection, expressions of love are really important. Even if you are seeking sexual fulfillment elsewhere and so is she, turning to each other, looking at each other and saying, I love you and you are the reason I can have it all, that I have sexual fulfillment, but not with you necessarily. We tried. That didn't work. But I have sexual fulfillment with others as do you and I have everything else that we do for each other, everything else our relationship is about. I get to have that too because of you, because of who you are, because of who I am, because of who we are together. And that is wonderful and valuable. So continue to honor and respect and love each other and prioritize each other. And you won't become the cautionary tale in two years or five years or 10 years that everybody points to to say, ah, see, always the death knell, always the beginning and the end. Thanks so much for your call. Hey, Dan, it's a 53 year old gay guy down in Houston. And, um, I saw a headline recently, undetectable equals untransmissible. Um, evidently, the CDC, based on three long-term studies, have um, determined that an undetectable viral load equals untransmissible virus via sex. I've been waiting for you to comment. Um, I've heard no one comment on this. Uh, I'd love to get your opinion. And uh, is, it free? is it time to go bareback? A lot of people were bareback all along. Bareback, of course, is slang for anal intercourse, usually uh, between two men where no condom is used. Barebacking. The CDC recently announced what others have announced, what other organizations, AIDS organizations, medical organizations, particularly European health agencies, that if someone has an undetectable viral load, that they are uninfectious, that undetectable equals uninfectious. Does that mean everybody should go bareback now? Well, there's still an element of trust here. You meet someone, you don't meet their doctor at the same time. You're not getting their lab results in real time. They tell you that they're undetectable. Are they? Have they been taking their drugs? Are they undetectable? You're taking a leap of faith there. Um, I think in the context of a committed long-term relationship where you know, you're know you up on each other's health uh, and you know whether they're taking their meds, that yeah, I think barebacking – is appropriate. I also think the other partner, if there's a, if it's a zero discordant relationship where one is positive and one is negative, uh, the other partner should be on prep, and then it's no problem. Go bareback. 
However, some people are taking undetectable equals uninfectious and PrEP to mean that we can all just throw our condoms away and nobody needs to worry anymore. Well, there are other sexually transmitted infections out there. Syphilis, gonorrhea, chlamydia. There's a drug-resistant strain of gonorrhea that health experts are very, very concerned about. There's uh, the skin-to-skin contact one, herpes, HPV, uh, that condoms don't provide as good or as effective protection from as they do for syphilis and gonorrhea, chlamydia and HIV, but they provide some degree of protection. So we should be concerned about those other sexually transmitted infections too. It's a raging syphilis epidemic in the gay community. We should be concerned about that. We should also be concerned about the possibility of an unknown sexually transmitted infection popping up. This happened already once. A hitherto unknown fatal sexually transmitted infection appeared on the scene and killed all my friends. This is a thing that happened and this is a thing that could happen again. So I don't think we should throw the condoms away. I don't think we should all go bareback. I think there are more complicated and nuanced discussions. There are more complicated and nuanced uh, trade-offs people are making, uh, rationalization sometimes people are making, but also people are weighing the risks and the rewards and making a new calculation about the degree of risk they're willing to tolerate for the reward of not having to worry about condoms or going bareback. But I don't think PrEP and I don't think undetectable equals uninfectious means that we should close down the condom factories and that nobody needs to ever use a condom again. There are people out there who aren't in treatment, who are infectious. There are people out there who believe themselves to have a zero viral load because they did last time they got checked and perhaps haven't been drug compliant since. And there are, and crucially, there are other sexually transmitted infections out there in the world that we should be concerned about and using condoms to protect ourselves from. Hi, Dan. I'm 35 years old and about 10 years into a long-term relationship. It's been about a month and a half since my partner and I have had sex. Um, I usually start fussing at him when we get to about a week but I feel like I've kind of given up this time. I know you've said that couples should be aligned on this from the start so they don't end up in relationships where the sex just isn't satisfying. The thing is, we did. I mean, we theoretically agree on how much sex we want a few times a week, ideally. But then long work hours and other life stressors get in the way and sex just didn't happen. I I haven't brought up the lack of sex because... Um, I'm worried about the outcome of the conversation. What if we decide we're not attracted to each other anymore? I've thought about suggesting an open relationship in the hopes that some new relationship energy could infuse our relationship, but um, he has never seemed into the idea, and I worry that the suggestion will prompt a breakup. I know this is stupid. I'm worried about breaking up, but I'm not happy with the status quo. Can you just tell me what I should do? I do recommend that people prioritize sexual compatibility at the start of a relationship. I think it's good that you two did that. It's possible, however, over the years, and you guys have been together a decade, that libidos wax and wane, interests wax and wane. People come into a sense of their kinks that they weren't aware of before. Uh, And sexual compatibility isn't carved in marble. It's not set in stone that you can be sexually compatible at the beginning of the relationship and after a decade be less sexually compatible than you were before. And you do have to have then perhaps a risky conversation about what that means and what that portends for your 
future together. But I don't think that's likely to be the case here. And this is something that people have a hard time talking about. The same way they have a hard time talking about openness or sexual compatibility, people have a hard time talking about boredom. You've been together a decade. Ask yourself, when you do have sex, is it in the same place? Is it in the same way? Is it at the same time? How adventurous is the sex that you two have? One of the ways that people take each other for granted is by making less of an emotional investment, making less of an imaginative investment in their sex life. They stop working at it. They stop trying because every time we do it, we do it the same way. We do it at the same time. And people just get fucking bored. So how do you address boredom? Well, you have to be able to talk about it, first of all. That we're not having sex is it because you're bored and then you have to be prepared to hear, yeah, I'm kind of bored. And then you need to remember what sex was like at the beginning of the relationship, when it was exciting, what was going on. Well, you didn't know each other well. So sex was risky and that gets the adrenaline pumping because he could be a monster. You could be psycho. You don't know. You're taking a risk. You're making a leap of faith early in the relationship when you first become intimate and it's scary and you're making yourself vulnerable in this way that – Get the adrenaline pumping and the blood pumping and the dick hard and the pussy wet. And then 10 years later, undressing in front of that person is something you do every day and have been doing every day for a decade. And it just doesn't get the blood pumping. It doesn't feel risky. It doesn't feel dangerous. It's boring. So you have to artificially create risks and stakes. The risks and stakes that were built into the relationship at the start that you perhaps weren't even aware of but were there, you have to make a conscious effort to create new stakes, new risks. New hurdles for you guys to leap over to fuck each other. Now, for some, that's opening up the relationship, that, that new relationship energy you talk about. Like people can open a relationship and not just find that they're having great sex with other people, but often the couple that opens a relationship begins to have great sex again with each other because they just feel invigorated. They also see each other in a new way. They see each other as desirable because other people are desiring your partner and acting on those desires. And that can instill in you a compulsion to reclaim your partner sexually, to assert your possession of each other, hopefully in a healthy sense of possession, not a controlling and awful and abusive sense of possession. Short of opening the relationship, there's just mixing it up, making a conscious effort. My go-to recommendation is you say to each other, okay, we haven't been having sex. Shit got boring. Let's fix that. We're going to have sex twice this week, not in our bed, not in our house, not at this time, not in the same way. In fact, it's up to you when and where we have sex and you have to surprise me. And next week I'll do the same. Next week it's up to me when and where and I will surprise you. And then you're at work and your partner comes around the corner, your partner who never comes to your workplace. What are they doing there? They're there to fuck you. <laughs> and you're going to have to find a stairwell, a bathroom, an empty office, an empty conference room, a storeroom where you can go fuck. And it's going to be risky because, oh my God, what if you get caught and you get in trouble for fucking your spouse that you've been fucking for 10 years? But in this different place at a different time with different stakes, with new stakes, new risks to excite you to get the blood pumping. New stakes, new risks to replace, consciously created to replace the stakes and risks that were built in and that you took for granted and that excited you at the start. Good luck. Hi, Dan. Um, I have kind of a dilemma. I'm past the seven-year itch and I'm going into year nine. Make sure it'll be year 10. I was by for now anyway, husband. And he keeps going out of his way to belittle me at work. It's bad enough. He's the supervisor, but he just, it's like, I don't know if it's the environment or what, but he really makes a go at it and 
belittles me every chance I get and I'm fat and nobody wants me. And it's like, we're in Denver. It's more men here. And it's like all this shit he's saying, it's like, that's not true. Why do you say that? So I'm thinking he's just insecure and he knows he's on his way out. That's why he's acting like this. I'm really past the point of marriage counseling at this point. I've already contacted a divorce lawyer earlier this month. So I'm, I'm really at that point. Been through uh, a suicide attempt, homelessness, uh, all types of shit. And, you know, we're here and he just, this is the third time he's embarrassed me at work, just at work. And um, I'm fed up. I don't know what else to say, what else to tell you other than go get that divorce, girl. You have grounds. Sounds like this relationship's marriage is making you miserable. Sounds like you married an asshole. But divorce is legal in Colorado and everywhere else. And I think you should avail yourself of your right to end this marriage and uh, put this asshole behind you. Hey, Dan, 27-year-old living in a liberal bubble in the South. And I need some advice on something. Last week, I got a message that there were naked pictures of me on Craigslist saying, guess where I work or my name and I'll show you my open cut. I emailed Craigslist and they got down uh, pretty quickly. But I had another friend message me and say that my ex had sent, also sent him pictures quote unquote, accidentally of me. I, you know, reported the messages, but I don't know if I should take further action. My ex-boyfriend, we just stated for like six or seven months and we've been broken up for about the same amount of time. It's only been recently where I blocked him on social media and everything because I just can't talk to him. I hyperperspirate. He just acts like a fucking chode. And I just don't know if I should take other actions or if I should pretend like it's not happening. Let me know. Joining me by phone to help tackle this question, Carrie Goldberg. She's a victim's rights lawyer. Her firm is based in Brooklyn. It's CA Goldberg Law. They're at cagoldberglaw.com. And they are a pioneering crusading firm in the field of revenge porn, domestic violence, sexual assault, and public figure crisis. Hey, Carrie, thank you for jumping on the phone. Hi, thanks for having me. So before we get to the specifics of uh, this caller's question, you were inspired to get into this field, the sort of emerging field of revenge porn some years ago because you were a victim or you were threatened by someone in a similar way to, as to the caller. Is that right? Yeah, that's true. And basically after my whole crisis was resolved, I um, decided that I was going to become the lawyer that I'd needed when I'd been unable to find one myself. And um, I have. We've we've helped hundreds of, of people who've been the victims of uh, stalking, sexual assault, blackmail, on and off. What I always like to say is that we stalk trolls, assholes, pervs, and psychos. But I think I might add total chodes. That <laughs> yeah, and the total chodes out there, they need stopping. And just a decade ago, there were no laws against this kind of harassment. You know, you share pictures with someone while you're intimate, while you like them, and then they weaponize them after the, if the relationship goes south. They send them to your mom, they send them to your colleagues, some of your coworkers, they post them on, uh, you know, social media sites or Craigslist. And 
tell us about the emerging sort of jurisprudence of, pardon me, I mispronounced that word, the emerging jurisprudence of revenge porn and, and, and the criminalization of, of th- these assaults. Right. Well, so as you said, like there were no laws 10 years ago, and now we have 37 states uh, that have criminal laws outlawing and sometimes sending to jail anybody who posts non-consensual uh, sexually graphic images or videos. Uh, so that's a huge change. And, and also over the last uh, couple years, we've gotten tech companies to, to be on board. So Twitter, Facebook, even Google now have policies within their platforms that ban revenge porn as well. So you can lose all your social media sites. You can get shut down by these companies. They're not just going to pull down the posts that you may put up. They're also going to block you and, and delete your accounts. Is that right? Right, right. A lot of times um, the offender will create impersonating accounts um, as if they were our victim and then friend everybody in his or her life and then post the, the revenge porn just to kind of do the, the ultimate harm. And now we can easily get those profiles taken down. So when you drag one of these assholes into court, do they crumble? Are they as vicious in person? I mean, I'm sure you've gone face to face and toe to toe with some of these revenge pornographers, which I think is too glamorous a term for them, but with some of these assholes, some of these chodes, what are they like when you get, when they're, when they're called to account? Oh, they're, they're total chodes in real life. Uh, they always, you know, are very regretful. Um, but of course we all know that they regret being caught more than they regret the actual actions. And they, they sometimes, you know, sometimes the offender gets named in uh, the media for having been arrested for revenge porn. And they always like to say that their privacy was violated for, for being outed as a revenge pornographer. Oh my God. The arson was bad, but that I got outed as the arsonist. That's the real crime. Exactly. Exactly. Um, So what would your advice be for this particular caller? First thing, probably to look up the statutes in her state to Google revenge porn in the name of her state and see if it's, she lives in one of the 37 States where, it's a criminal offense would be the first move. Would it not? That's, that's exactly what she should do. And even if she's in one of those states that doesn't have a specific revenge porn law, um, it sounds like this guy may have broken other laws as well. I mean, he impersonated her on Craigslist and held her out as a hooker. You know, that could violate other crimes. Um, You know, if the pictures were taken without her consent or knowledge, that could uh, trigger video voyeurism laws if if they're underage. If he threatened to release them before he actually released them, then that could trigger coercion laws. So even for people who don't have the luxury of living in one of those uh, 37 states plus Washington, D.C., they may still have law enforcement options. So after after she finds out if, if her state is one, we'd also want her to, I mean, I think she should hire a lawyer. This guy is escalating. This isn't just revenge porn, but this is also an escalation that, that's quite serious. Um, him impersonating her and holding her out as a hooker. A lot of revenge porn victims are desperately fearful that the kind of downstream harassers, the people who view the revenge porn, are going to show up at their home mm-hmm. or their workplace. Because in the majority of, of cases, personal identifying information is posted alongside revenge porn. And in this case, she said that um, he basically made a challenge for people to to um, out where she works and what her name is. And so that's that's an invitation for 
other, you know, unsavory people to, to contact her, which, which is quite dangerous. One of the things that's most galling about revenge porn is often the victim is further victimized. People who have been victimized by assholes, by chodes, uh, sharing their photos without their consent, will lose their jobs, will get in trouble with their families, have lost friends, because they're treated like the ones who did something wrong and taking the pictures in the first place. How do we combat that? I mean, that just seems crazy to me because almost everybody is flirting online, sharing pictures online, initiating relationships online uh, through dating sites where you may swap pics. Um, we have kind of fully incorporated this technology into not just our dating and romantic lives, but also into our sex lives and our uh, sort of our erotic imaginations. And it's rare to find someone who hasn't shared these pictures. And yet it seems so often that when someone is victimized like this, the judgment and the shaming is not directed at the victimizer, but the victim. That's absolutely true. And what I like to tell those people is that every single one of us is a moment away from meeting somebody who becomes hellbent on our destruction. And revenge porn often is not usually um, is happens within the context of other stalkering stalker type behavior. And, you know, we have a client who was the victim of revenge porn and, um, and also impersonation that resulted in several people coming to her home thinking that she was a hooker similar to this case. And the offender was arrested uh, last Thursday, um, and it's being charged federally. And so awesome. She, and she never, even Congratulations. Had, she never even, sh- yeah, I mean, it's, it's a big, exciting thing, but she never shared a picture. She had hacked into her computer and was blackmailing her with her entries, um, from her diary about, um, her abortion and about, um, oh. sex that she'd had and was sending that to hundreds of people in her life. And, you know, you don't have to send naked pictures, although I totally see nothing wrong with, with it. You know, it's, it, it is part of dating and mating behavior nowadays. Um, but, but anybody can, can be the victim of a privacy violation. We have clients whose bikinis were photoshopped off of a picture that was found on Facebook or whose head was photoshopped onto a porn, like a porn star's body. So you don't actually have to have even taken the picture. And one of the I don't want to give the offenders ideas. So if you're listening, offenders, to this podcast, please know we will find you. So don't take any of the ideas. But one of the other things that I've been seeing a lot lately are like collages. So an offender will create a collage of the um, victim's face and body and, and just regular clothes pictures and then also include vagina shots. Or penis shots if, if the victim's a male. To suggest then, that these are around. to suggest that these are pictures of of their penis or their vagina by sort of association or proximity, when in actual fact that's not mm-hmm. that person's uh, genitalia. Exactly. Uh, exactly. It's so it's so upsetting, and you know I'm I'm upset most at the chodes. Of course, I'm upset at the chodes, but I'm always flabbergasted at, at the the shamers and the judges and the firers uh, when it comes to people who've lost their jobs as a result of this sort of thing. And people who work with kids or you know teachers, I think, are particularly vulnerable to this kind of bullshit. And sometimes what's said, and I'm curious what you would say. Sometimes what's said by the shamers who are putting the blame in the wrong place is, well, you shouldn't take pictures like this. You shouldn't have shared pictures like this. No one should take or share pictures like this. Is that your advice to, because you never know that someone's a, an asshole or a child some, until after you've dated them for a while. That's something some, you discover and you stop dating them because they reveal themselves to be a fucking asshole and that's, and, and you dump them 
And then if you, early in the relationship or when you were still besotted or before they had dropped the mask and showed you who they really are, you shared stuff with them that everybody might be sharing with people that they loved and trust and were investing in emotionally. So is your advice, don't share those pictures until after your 15th wedding anniversary? What's your advice for people who are thinking about taking <laughs> is, a picture of their genitals? Is, my advice is basically that, I mean, consenting to share an image with one person is not consenting for that person to then share it with the entire internet and put your genitals on a platter for, for, um, you know, people to, to consume. But, you know, it's, it's like, we don't, we don't judge people whose home has been burglarized. We don't tell them, well, that's what you get for having a house. And owning a TV that could be seen through the window. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Or, you know, if, if I give somebody my, my credit card, you know, when I'm buying a pair of shoes, I'm not consenting for them to, to go out and buy a Ferrari. Um, so, you know, it's, it's consent is context specific. But the other thing is that, you know, not every case is, is that of the jilted ex who's trying to, to avenge himself after a breakup. Mm-hmm. I mean, sometimes the nude pictures are obtained other ways through hacking. Sometimes victims are passed out. And we, oh. there was a big case um, at Penn State where there was a private Facebook page where some fraternity brothers were were just posting pictures of girls, naked girls who'd been who'd passed out at their parties. It's so rare to hear the phrase "some fraternity brothers were" and then have a good thing come after that. Some fraternity brothers were raising money for Puerto Rico relief. I'm sure there are probably some fraternity brothers out there right now raising money for Puerto Rico relief, and we'll hear from them. But it's just so rare. It's like the Texas State Legislature today is what comes next is never good or rarely good, if ever good. Uh, one last question, um, and, and I'm just curious what you might think about this. I think there should be a national holiday where everybody releases their dirty pictures online because once everybody has their dirty pictures out there, a dirt, one person's dirty pictures can't be leveraged against them, can't be weaponized. And I just feel like looking around, everybody's taking these pictures, particularly everybody under 50 is taking these pictures. And yet everybody acts with shock and horror when someone else's picture out there. And you just look at people and say, well, what about your pictures? And I, I worry about our kids who are, you know, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19 years old, sometimes getting tripped up with the, uh, you know, sexting laws and child porn laws being used against children, which is ridiculous, and who are so vulnerable because everybody's pictures aren't out. But if we live in a world one day where everybody's pictures are out, then nobody can be dinged for it? Am I just being utopian and irrational and unrealistic? Um, maybe. I just, <laughs> I think everyone should have the right to their sexual privacy. But I, I get I what you're saying. You know, I think people should maybe have the option to, to release their own. And, and certainly um, that does exist. There's um, plenty of pornography out there, which makes it even more shocking that there is such a market for non-consensual pornography. But, you know, I agree that there's, uh, there's just nothing pervy about taking the picture. Mm-hmm. So you wouldn't tell someone not to take a picture if they felt so motivated to take a picture? And share. No, I mean, I would, I would have a different conversation with an underage person well, than of I course. would with an adult. But of course, as I have on this story. show plenty that's, of times. But like someone who's yeah. 22 years old who's dating somebody, maybe it's a long distance right now, and they're jumping on Skype or swapping some dirty pictures to keep that spark uh, glowing. You wouldn't advise that person based on you know the, the horror stories that you've heard never to do that, would you? No, it's age old. Tradition. Our, our soldiers used to go off to war with, with hot pictures of their girls in their, in their pockets. There's, mm-hmm. there's nothing exceptional about 
sharing intimate images. What's exceptional is, is, you know, furthering the distribution without consent. Before we let you go, circling back to the caller, your advice, go get a lawyer. Well, okay. But first of all, I want to just say one more thing to, to the caller. It's that, she, you know, she's like, should I just ignore this? You know, I think she, she did take some great action. She, she got the, the ad removed from Craigslist. Other things that she can do without having to get a lawyer include reporting it to law enforcement if her, if her state is one of those things. But the other thing that she did that was quite active is that she called one of the leading podcasts in the country <laughs> to talk about this. So that's some pretty, that's some pretty creative self-advocacy, if you ask me. And we got her actually some legal advice from the best lawyer uh, out there addressing these issues right now, which is you, Carrie. Thank you. Oh, but I should asterisk that, that this was not legal advice. That's right. This is just this um, all hypothetical. Shit um, before we go, one last question about the chodes. Uh, is it enough sometimes for someone just to get a letter, a, a kind of a cease and desist letter from a lawyer saying, are you aware of these statutes, these statutes, and the possible criminal uh, charges that may be brought against you and the liability that you may incur, uh, loss of freedom, fines? Have you found in your practice that sometimes it's enough to, for the asshole to get that letter, to stop it, to shut them down? Sometimes a cease and desist is enough. It kind of depends where on the scale between um, or the spectrum between asshole and psycho the person is. Usually it takes uh, handcuffs to, to stop a psycho. If somebody is on a war path or, you know, just kind of uh, tornado- tornadoing around uh, destroying a person's life as their full-time occupation, then, then you, you got to get law enforcement involved. Good advice. Carrie Goldberg of the C.A. Goldberg Law Firm, cagoldberglaw.com is where you can find them online. You can also jump on The New Yorker and read Margaret Talbot's excellent profile of uh, Carrie Goldberg. Thank you, Carrie, for jumping on the phone today. I really appreciate it. It was great chatting with you. Thank you, Dan. Hi, Dan, and the tech-savvy at-risk youth. I'm a late 20s straight woman living in the Midwest calling for some much-needed advice on a lingering relationship problem. About a year ago, I broke up with my boyfriend of almost four years. We've been very serious for a while, and at one point, we were even engaged. During the last year or so of our relationship, things started to fall apart. The sex was bad. I was putting in all of the work to maintain what became a long-distance relationship, and he was neglecting to communicate to me that he thought he might have feelings for someone else, which I found out after. After I came to my senses, I broke up with him. After a few months with no contact, he started to send emails and texts. At first, I completely ignored these messages until about six months ago, he suggested in one of them that he come down to visit. So at this point, I did make contact and I told him I didn't want to see him. Needless to say, he didn't listen to me and one day I came downstairs to find that he had made the six-hour drive and was on my porch. I let him say his piece and told him that I didn't want to get back together with him. I thought he understood, but a few days later, I received an essay of an email begging for me back. I wrote back and explained again We're never getting back together, and I'm blocking all further communication. I thought this email would get the message across, but apparently not. Okay, so now we're back in present time. I guess I remembered to block him on all forms of social media, except for LinkedIn. Last night, one year later, I received a message from him explaining his love for me, telling me that he misses me, and asking me not to ignore the message. This is really the last straw. I've talked this through with my new wonderful boyfriend and some of my close girlfriends, but would really appreciate your two cents. I feel like I've done everything at this point to communicate to him. I'm not interested. 
I've considered just ignoring him and blocking him, reaching out to his mother to ask her to reason with him, or even sending him a message back that is more mean and hurtful than I've ever been before, saying something along the lines of, you were a shitty boyfriend, I was always way too good for you, so stop harassing me and get the fuck out of my life. What do you think? I think that 53% of women who are murdered in this country are murdered by boyfriends and husbands or ex-boyfriends and ex-husbands. And typically this is exactly the kind of behavior a violent ex-boyfriend or ex-husband engages in before they show up and commit an act of violence. So I think you need to take this escalation extremely seriously and you need to take steps to protect yourself. I don't want you to panic, although what I'm saying, of course, sounds pretty panic-inducing. But if he knows where you live, that's a risk. Block him on everything. It may be time to involve the authorities. You have let him know in unmistakable terms that contact is unwelcome, that you do not wish to hear from him anymore, much less date him anymore, and he continues to contact you despite your expressed wishes. That's grounds for a restraining order. That then if he violates, you can involve the police. That then if he violates, he could be arrested and face consequences. That's a form of escalation, however, that can antagonize. And it's just – it's such a position of insecurity and weakness and, uh, and it's so fucking unfair. So many of those women, the 53 percent of women who are murdered in this country every year, who are murdered by boyfriends, husbands, ex-boyfriends, ex-husbands, had restraining orders. It's not a force field. But it's a concrete step and it may get through to him if he indeed is not capable of an act of insanity and violence like that, that it must stop, that it must stop, that there are consequences now for him. You have to make a decision about whether you're comfortable involving the authority. At the very least, block him on whatever platform he contacted you on recently or last. You may want to send him a one last message letting him know that you wish to never hear from him again and all communication from him is unwelcome and upsetting and keep a copy of that so that if you do decide to go to the authorities, you have that proof that you've told him to fuck the fuck off and you don't wish to ever hear from him again. Maybe it's a letter from a lawyer that he needs to get warning him about the legal peril that he is in if he continues to contact you in this way. I'm sorry this is happening to you. You do have to take Actions like this, particularly showing up on your porch after a six-hour drive, after you told him you didn't wish to see him again, you have to take that sort of shit very, very seriously. I don't know how long you've been with your new boyfriend. I don't know whether you guys live together or not yet. You don't want to rush that sort of thing. But if you're at the point where you might consider moving in together, it might be time to move in together and move and keep your name off the lease, or if you buy a house, keep your name off that, form a corporation so he can't trace you and find your new living space. Hey, Dan. I have been split from my ex for about three years, and I was just wondering how I can stop thinking about them when I masturbate. So you broke up with your ex three years ago, and you're still masturbating about him? Was the sex amazing? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> um, yeah, well, the, all the sex I've had since has been horrible. Oh, I'm so sorry. Yeah, I mean, it just, you know, I think so, it was like too soon and, you know, so. Do you have any desire to get back together with your ex? No, not at all. No, I'll never let him. Um, no, no. No, no, no. That, that, that's so odd to me. Like, I, I remember answering a question years ago in Savage Love from someone who asked if it was okay to masturbate about Marilyn Monroe. And 
My answer was, you know, I don't think it's disrespectful to masturbate about a dead person who can't consent to you masturbating about them, which was kind of the frame of their question when, you know, you masturbate all the time, do whatever the hell you want to without first seeking the consent of the person you're masturbating about. That would be a creepy violation to seek the consent. Mm. But I was against masturbating about dead movie stars because I think masturbation is an expression of hope for the future. You should be masturbating about something possible. And it's not Mm -hmm. possible to have sex with Marilyn Monroe. Sure. And so for me, that's just like a, a circuit breaker there. Like when I masturbate, it's about things that I hope are going to happen and happen soon. Maybe that's the trick you need to play with yourself. Just, just the mind game you need to play with yourself. Start masturbating about yeah. possibilities as opposed to impossibilities. You don't want to get back together with this guy. No, nope, we're done. So that's not a possibility. So you're masturbating about right. about something that's dead. It's a kind of necrophilia. Right sorts oh yeah and you don't want to do that you don't want to taint your erotic imagination with impossibilities or death you want to focus on what could be coming your way literally in the future (laughs) so what do you want in the future from your sex life oh my gosh that's a really good question (laughs) um i'm not sure i don't i'm not sure what were you getting from him that was so great that you're masturbating about him three years later um, I think it was just like the sex that we had was so was so good because we knew exactly what I mean we were married you know we were together for ten years like we had a um, a groove we had a pretty um, yeah you know we knew what each other liked and totally comfortable and I think now about like trying that with someone new is like you know I did try it with a couple friends and it just didn't go well so I I don't know how long were you with him before you could really unpack what you liked before you could communicate that to him. He was actually um, a virgin, and so for him, for me, it was more like not scaring him. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm pretty open about what I like and what I want, and um, you know what makes me feel good. Okay, so the problem isn't you. It wasn't that you, you know you only felt safe after five years. So it's a daunting no, prospect no, to no. get into a new relationship because it's going to take five years before you can start having that great sex again that you miss. Oh no! You yeah, can put no, your needs out not. there right away. And, yeah. and, and articulate them and ask for what you want. That's not the block. Exactly. So keep fucking people. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> keep putting your needs out there. Keep meeting new guys until you find someone that you click with. And remember, I'm sure at the beginning of that 10-year relationship with your ex, who was a virgin when you guys got together, it wasn't great at the start. No, no. It no, got great not. over time. Nobody's it great sure at did. sex out of the gate. And, right. I, and I don't think that's just about virginity. Like no two people who've never had sex before are going to be great at sex together out of the gate. It takes time for two people who, two people who are really even on the same page, who like the same shit, who are going to be good together. It takes time to like, for them to catch a groove. Yeah. And so what you need to tell yeah. yourself is if you have bad sex with somebody, don't discard them. Okay. Was the sex bad with your ex at the start? No, it was not. We always, we just sort of clicked, but, um, we waited at least like three or four months, which is a really long time for me, but that's what he wanted, mm-hmm. um, to have actual sex. I mean, we did other stuff, but we, um, we just had a chemistry that, you know, I'm, I guess that's sort of it too. Like, I'm afraid I'm not going to find that chemistry, you, you know, again. And you know. there's 3.5 billion plus other men on the planet. Right. <laughs> True. You won't have to, I promise you, you won't have to fuck more than three or 400,000 of them to find that chemistry again. Probably a whole lot less than three or 400,000 of them. But I want, my assignment to you going forward is masturbate about the future and about possibilities. Even if you have to invent a guy 
who doesn't okay. look anything like your ex, but has the same skills and that you have the same connection, just will yourself to put a different face on that person and masturbate about that guy who's coming your way rather than the guy who's in the rearview mirror that you're never going to see again. Okay, I will do that. Good luck. <laughs> Thank you. Take care. Yeah, hi. Um, I have a question about my uh, child's Halloween costume. My wife and I are uh, very progressive people. We have always uh, supported uh, gay rights and uh, and all of that and taught our children that as well. Uh, and apparently... My children, who are 10 and 12 in 5th and 7th grade, have uh, talked to my wife and decided that they want to go as gay rights, which I'm totally fine with, but uh, it appears that it involves a fair amount of flamboyance. And my wife doesn't have an issue with this. And personally, my concern is that this is might be some type of gay blackface, for lack of a better term. I don't know how to put it. I don't care what other people think in terms of them supporting gay rights or any of that stuff. I'm all for it. I just don't want it to come off looking like there may, might be sort of making fun of gay people. So what would your guidelines be for kids who want to do gay pride Halloween costumes? Not all gay people are flamboyant. Of course, there's always been a streak of flamboyance and showmanship and flash in gay rights demonstrations. And a lot of queer rights activists brought their sort of queer sensibilities and artistic flair and style to gay rights demonstrations, but not all people who participated in gay rights demonstrations and not all people who advocated for gay rights, not all gay people are flamboyant. And it is a little kind of cluelessly reductive to boil the whole LGBT civil rights struggle down to flashy. If your kids want to dress up as fabulous queers on Halloween, I totally support that. But push them in the direction of a fabulous queer. Encourage them to be Hedvig for Halloween or if they really want to reach back in time for a pop culture reference that most of their contemporaries will not be familiar with, expose them on YouTube to a little bit of Liberace and bring Liberace back for Halloween. Or if your kids want to be something scary and make a pro-gay rights statement in a kind of Halloween scary way, have them dress up as any one of Trump's judicial nominees at any level of the federal judiciary. That's some terrifying shit right there. But I think you do need to have a conversation with your kids about not tokenizing gay people and not boiling all gay people down to a sequin shirt and a feather boa and then calling that gay rights because that ain't gay rights. It's a certain kind of gay flash, panache, those very important people in the struggle for LGBT liberation, queer people who can't hide, don't hide, refuse to hide, queer people who got out there and were as fabulous and as fabulously queer as they could possibly be, who turned it up to 11. I don't think we would have made the progress we've made over the last 50 years without that kind of gay activism, those kinds of gay activists. But that ain't gay rights. Those are particular kinds of gay rights activists. And they're humans. They're not t-shirts. So... Have a combo with your kids. It's not akin, I think, to dressing up in blackface, nowhere near as offensive as 
that kind of minstrel show shit, blackface. No, not as offensive, but a little off the mark, a little clueless about what gay people are and what the whole LGBT civil rights struggle was about and a great opening for you to have a conversation with your kids about all of that. Hi, this is in reference to episode 573, where a couple of women complained that men had ghosted them after having sex. I have found that if I go on a date with somebody and then I'm thinking about having sex with them, but I'm really into them and I would be upset if they somehow slut shamed me and didn't want to hang out with me after we had quick sex, I can just ask, are you the kind of guy who doesn't really think about somebody seriously if you have sex with them quickly? And guys who lie about this tend to be pretty obvious and guys who don't also tend to be pretty obvious. So that's something I found really useful. I don't tend to have sex with somebody who seems like they're the kind of person who couldn't take someone seriously after having sex with them really quickly. This is in response to the guy whose grinder date wants to do when he comes in for his drug test. I've been a secretary most of my career and lots of my boyfriends have wanted to do me on my desk in my pencil skirt, but I don't want to get fired. So I've come up with a plan and here's what you can do too. So you bring your scrubs and a sterile cup and whatever else you need to his hotel room and you do a mock exam followed by crazy hot sex there in his hotel bathroom. That way you can both experience the fantasy without losing your job or your medical license, which is also a real possibility. Good luck and have fun. Hey, Dan and the Tech Savvy at Risk Youth. Um, I'm calling with a comment for um, the gal at the end of episode 573 who was uh, not able to make out with her boyfriend because of his beard. I wanted to bring up uh, laser hair removal for the guy. It's a it's a drastic solution. It's a permanent solution to just not have hair grow on his face anymore. But I had it done on my neck. I used to get really bad ingrown hairs, and it was amazing. It takes a few sessions, and uh, it hurts a little bit. But once it's done, the hair is just gone, and it never, ever comes back. So if he doesn't want to have a beard, maybe his beard's kind of a pain in the ass anyway, he could just get it uh, removed, and it would never grow back. And we're going to leave it there. 206-302-2064 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you'd like to record a question or a comment for a future show, give us a buzz. 206-302-2064. Tickets are on sale now for the premiere of the 13th Annual Hump Film Festival, premiering in Seattle at Portland and Olympia later this month. Go to humpfilmfest.com to order tickets. Shows are selling out fast. So humpfilmfest.com. Get your tickets now. Follow me on Twitter at Fake Dan Savage. Follow Carrie Goldberg on Twitter at CA Goldberg Law. Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech savvy at Rescue, Dan Nancy. And we'll all be back at you next week with another installment of Savage Lovecast. Thanks for